Hey, this is Daryl. Today's episode of the Total Suck Show is the last of our Sunderland Till I Die review episodes. We hope you've been enjoying. If you're looking for something a bit more historical, then you might enjoy Soccer 101, our other show. If you listen to the most recent episode of Soccer 101, we review Diego Maradona's performance against England in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal. It is a classic for the ages. It's got the hand of God goal and the goal of the century. So if you're looking to hear about maybe the greatest performance of all time, highly recommend listening to that episode of Soccer 101. But today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, the episode you're about to hear, is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast. That means it's about two minutes or so per episode from the experts at GoToMeeting. It's all about making work from home work for you. It offers indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated and productive at home. Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. You can find Remarkably Remote on smart speakers you know like alexa or google home amazon echo that's the same as alexa right or you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so whichever app you're listening to this show on right now you can find remarkably remote on that app you can also if you're really old school you can listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips that's gotomeeting.com slash t-i-p-s Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who hates this squeaky bum time. He hates this not knowing. He wants it to be over and we've won. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I do hate squeaky bum time, though I do love that expression, which I will for all, uh, forever credit to Sir Alex Ferguson. My, yeah. That might just be my fandom, but in my mind, he's the one who coined it. Uh, but I forget how... Strange of a phrase it is because watching this with my wife, she was like, what did that person just say? <laughs> I think the phrase existed as like, mm-hmm. a, you know, a colloquialism, probably in Scotland and up north in England. And I think Alex Ferguson took it mainstream. Yeah. I mean, it's a good saying. I like that saying more than let's go with uh, Jesus looked like a total failure. That's a way to begin an episode. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> that's that's like when the priest is giving the sermon at the beginning of the show. He said like when Jesus was on the cross, he looked like a total failure until the resurrection. That was his I sermon. See. Yeah, he was drawing parallels between uh, sure Jesus' resurrection at Easter and uh, Sunderland possibly going up with automatic promotion. <laughs> it's yes. a stretch. It's it a stretch. Was. Oh, by the way, we are here to talk about yeah. Sunderland Till I Die, mm-hmm. episode six. I've forgotten mm-hmm. the, uh, the title of this episode. Football uh, is life. It was called Football is Life. There we go. I am, I am still, with, with that in mind, with you mentioning that this is the final episode of the second season, I am still confused why they didn't make this season seven episodes. I read a thing that like, they have like thousands of hours on the cutting room floor, evidently. The first season is seven episodes. They seem to cram a lot into the this final episode, and I wonder if it's just because it would have been kind of a lot of the same of them being okay, but not being great, and things not going well, but not going tragically wrong. And so maybe it just didn't make for that compelling of TV? I, I have no idea. I've, I'm, I would argue that this season is not as compelling as the first season. So maybe mm. there just wasn't that, that much to work with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that could be. Um, I do have, actually, I have a larger theory about maybe mm. why the second season isn't quite as good as the first season. Um, okay. And it really hits home at the end of this episode. Obviously, spoiler alert, but I'm hoping if you're listening to this review of episode yeah. six, you've seen it. I'm also, most people have finished the season like four weeks ago. Yeah. Also, this all happened last year. So yeah. kind mm-hmm. of spoiler alert for a thing that happened last year. Um, when Sunderland lose in the playoff final, um, and then we spend time with fans like Lynn and the other people that we know being genuinely upset about not being promoted. I noticed it didn't hit me as hard as seeing it the, uh, the last season when the team was relegated. And what I realised was we'd spent so much time with Stuart Donald and Charlie Methven um, and way less time with the fans that I didn't feel as connected to the fans as a viewer as I did in the first season. And I also don't feel that fondly towards Stuart Donald and, Donald and Charlie Methven. So I'm not as emotionally invested in Sunderland succeeding. And I think at, at this point as well, 
like it is kind of proven that Sunderland can get in their own way and can fail. I think even knowing the way it went at the end of last season, I still sort of, it's that weird thing of like, even when you've seen a movie 15 times, you have that moment of like, but maybe it will be different this time. <laughs> like it's just, you don't expect them to go down. And so I think it's Were you extra watching the, shocking on the top The Bandersnatch of version of Sunderland Till I Die. I mean, I kind of wish they had made more of those, uh, but until they do, I'll just have a, have optimism. But yeah, so I think just that, is such a big club going to League One it never felt like a possibility, and so it was that much more jarring, whereas they're in League One already and they're staying there. Yeah, okay. I, I guess I'm on board for that. Yeah, I guess it's not as it's not as dramatic, right? Failing mm-hmm. to get promoted is not as dramatic as a shock relegation when you're actually expecting promotion back to the Premier League. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I do know as well, Taylor, that Sunderland Till I Die, if there is a season three, it's not going to be the 2019-20 season. I have seen interviews with the filmmakers and mm-hmm. they have not been filming this season because they basically said there's not a stronger story because there wasn't a new ownership group to follow and the club was just in the same league as it was last season trying to do the same thing. So if there is a season three, it won't be the season that is currently paused but in progress. Yeah, and then reading between the lines a little bit because I read some stuff along those lines as well, it also seems like maybe the new ownership group felt like there was an obligation or maybe an opportunity to continue with the documentary to sort of show the work they were doing and mm-hmm. show the behind the scenes. Because they backed but themselves like, to look good, I would imagine. Right. But then like, I read an interview with Jack Ross who basically said like, he didn't know it was happening when he like, interviewed for the job or he, didn't, uh, he wasn't aware it would continue to happen. And so like, he kind of tried to do his best but also made a point of saying, like, I never signed up to be like a reality TV star. I signed yeah. up to be a manager. And I do wonder if maybe the novelty wore off for them this season and they didn't really want cameras around so much for everything that had happened or maybe in retrospect they thought we didn't need that documented so maybe we don't need it documented next season I'll tell you if I was a football club owner um, I would not want cameras following my players and staff and coaches around I just don't think it helps and if you're looking to get the very best um, out of your club and out of your team out of your players out of your staff I don't think a documentary crew helps no I, I don't think it does and I also think that there is something to like, like speculation is sometimes your friend when you're the owner, because if you can sort of, if you don't have to fill in the blanks, if you don't have a documentary crew showing like, this is why Josh Maja left and this is how it all went down, you can sort of hide behind some things and maybe not fill in some blanks. And so it's left up to the speculation of the fans as opposed to, well, we have documentary evidence that this is how it went down. You don't have as much cover as you might otherwise. So I think it really does sort of point the spotlight on them, which admittedly they chose to have that spotlight there but i think yeah. they're probably happy to not, ha- not have it around as much this time around i also I, I don't know this for sure but it feels to me like Stuart donald and charlie methven either asked the documentary filmmakers to like include them more and make them more of a focal point and maybe even were able to influence how the story was told Right. So one, I saw one of the producers say they had many more interviews with players, but the narrative for the season seemed to be more about Stewart and Charlie, and that's where they, that's what they went with the, from a production standpoint. So it seems like they made a choice at some point that they, like the ownership group, was the interesting narrative more so than the players and the fans. I see. So then maybe I would argue that maybe if Donald and Methan didn't have some sort of editorial veto or control Mm -hmm. which you'd be crazy as the filmmakers to let them have that right um then at the very least the filmmakers were not willing to go all the way and show the worst side of them yes i'm sure there was a moment when they're like can you maybe not include that please yeah but i mean we've gone over the josh magic transfer before Mm -hmm. right there's a lot more to it than than they let on i mean and they could have highlighted for example you had Stuart donald saying that like Oh, we didn't know Josh Maggio was going to be such a such a big deal and all that. And, you know, he was like a £700 a week youth team player. But if you look back, he appeared 18 times the previous season. Mm-hmm. And you said in, at the end of season one, there's, uh, there's a line of, um, as the changeover is happening, aren't they advised to get Josh Maggio on a new... says, sign him. Yes. yes. <laughs> Renew so, him. <laughs> I just, yeah, it feels like they... They weren't, they very much the opposite of thrown under a bus. If anything, they were pushed out of the way of a bus by the filmmakers. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So should we get to this episode then, the final episode of maybe the final episode of all time for Sentinel Until I Die? At least for now. So as you mentioned, it starts with the priest drawing the uh, comparison, uh, the hopeful comparison of Jesus's resurrection and Sunderland's resurrection, <laughs> um, which I guess seems like seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, and they it, take- it was another strange beginning, though, because we had Brexit last time for reasons, yeah. and then we had people on a cross for reasons. Yeah, and it seems like now, in hindsight, that that opening scene, I think the idea from the filmmakers is 
this is like setting the theme for the episode. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily tie in, but here's the theme. Like last week it was, uh, or last episode it was the theme of Sunderland's a working class town kind of thing, and and this time it's the theme of possible resurrection. Yeah, that's, it, a, that's my generous interpretation. I mean, that's fair, except that the story doesn't end with like, and Jesus almost got resurrected. Like, it's, well, yeah, but you don't know at the start of the episode, complete. right? So they're dangling resurrection fair. in front of you. All right, okay, I'm, I'm going right. to stop critiquing the show now, and, and right. let's let's just get to it. So, sure, let's do we it. open with what mm. I assume is an infamous five-four defeat against Coventry. Yes, I would assume it must be because they they go three-one down. They pull it back to three-three at the half. They go, I think, 4-3 up, and then they lose 5-4. It finishes 5-4. Weirdly, we come in basically at halftime, right? It's already 3-3 by the time we join this game. And then we see the 5-4 defeat. And I think we also see um, essentially Charlie and Stewart's uh, frustration with this result. One thing I think you and I both did the research and noticed is I understand highlighting this result, but going into this game, they were on a Sunderland were on a 19-game unbeaten streak. Right. Yeah. Unbeaten a lot of draws. The there. That's ten the ten thing, draws yeah. and nine wins, but it's still not mm-hmm. bad. Not bad, bad, right? And my no. guess is that this is seen both by the filmmakers and by the fans as the turning point in the season, right? Where it's no longer like we're pretty confident of automatic promotion. This is probably where they start to drop out of the top two, and it's all about we're probably in the playoff spots, but we've got a shot at automatic promotion. Yeah, and they do they do cut out a few games in there because we go from this game to like Lugo Nine getting a haircut saying, Well, as long as we win like the next three, but they've they've already kind of fast forwarded past a couple games in which I think they win one and draw two. Yes, that's so, exactly which again what I understand why they do it, but it is it's just a, it's a slightly confusing thing for me because you get this idea that like things have gotten suddenly very bad yeah. and they've just sort of suddenly gotten meh, not as good, but not as bad. What what I find really interesting as well is this five mm-hmm. four defeat. Um, they sort of seem to have uh, Donald and Methven blaming Jack Ross in some yeah. way. I went and found the actual highlights of this game, right? So I'm not, so I'm, for, essentially I'm watching the six goals that weren't shown on screen um, to go with the others. And it's essentially a lot of individual mistakes, right? There's yeah. not the huge gaps in midfield that they're complaining about at halftime. There's Luke O'Neill playing everyone on side. There's Flanagan buying a step over and Luke O'Neill letting his man run behind him. And then on the final goal, which we do see, it's Jack Baldwin slipping and then lunging for that ball on the on the final goal. It's yeah. not really a shape problem. It's an individual mistake problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it's players who probably aren't good enough. And, and that is, uh, <laughs> when when I first began my career mode Sunderland, I looked at those that defense and thought, yeah, you guys are all gone. Uh, and and they're, they're not very good in FIFA. They're not maybe very good in real life. And, but I did think that that was the most compelling part of the episode, is to go from this game in which you do see some bad mistakes. And I think it's Flanagan who basically gets done for the uh, Portsmouth or the Portsmouth go-ahead goal in the Checker Trade Trophy. Uh, that one, not very good from him. There's definitely some individual mistakes. But hearing him talk about sort of yeah. the pressure off the field in a town like Sunderland, I thought that was really interesting. Well, I, what I'm thinking is, Taylor, if you don't think he's good enough, you should go to Tesco and go yeah. talk to him. Yeah, well... I, you know what it, Tesco it, is, right? Tesco is the grocery store, basically. Yeah, I do. I, I thought that was like... We sort of I, we sort of get an idea of what that conversation was at the end of this episode when there's that gigantic fan waiting for Stuart Donald after the game, <laughs> and he kind of like holds his hand and won't let it go and says, like, are we ever going to be good? Yeah. And you see Stuart Donald sort of like expect the guy to let his hand go, and then he doesn't, and then it kind of gets a little bit contentious. And <laughs> My that's sir, your grip is very like strong. <laughs> yes. But here, like, I think like Flanagan tried to give him one of the, just sort of, you know, like, not a brush off, but just the, like, oh, yeah, yeah. it's just one of them games, isn't it? And then the guy was like, no. The like, guy's not. I'll give you the almost quote not yeah. effing good enough is it yeah is what yeah. is what the guy said to him and then mm-hmm. and then his missus had a bite at me as well yes <laughs> yes and but like you do sort of understand like i'm sure that's just flanagan sort of retelling a story and trying to be calm but the way he does recount that it is a bit like yeah man like maybe show a little bit of emotion be like yeah i know it's gotta yeah. be better what, like, what's interesting i think is this is definitely the biggest club he's been at it's the mm-hmm. biggest club Jack Baldwin's been at. It's the biggest club I think Ozturk has been at. I'm sort mm-hmm. of naming all the centre-backs here. And there is a pressure which comes from playing for a big, big team like Sunderland because the fans are everywhere in town and they're, they're really upset if you get things wrong, right? Like people talk about this, about um, if Americans go to Germany, this is what they have to face. And I think it's the same thing. If you're coming from a smaller team and playing for a big team where there's pressure on you, this is yeah. the sort of thing that you have to deal with. And this is the sort of thing that these guys 
will not be used to in a way that, for example, going back to last season, John O'Shea was one of the central mm-hmm. defenders and Paddy McNair was one of the central defenders. They've both played for Manchester United, right? So they know a little bit more about what that pressure's like. It's all new to these guys. And I think that's part of the problem this season. That's really interesting, Daryl. I had not thought about it like that. But of course, that makes sense that if this is like the biggest club, maybe the highest level you've played at, uh, d- depending on who you are in this documentary, like you see it as like, no, we're pushing for promotion. Like we're doing really well, right? Like we're almost there for automatic promotion. But if not, we'll be in the playoffs. Like we're doing really well. But for people who had been in the Premier League two seasons before this, it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like this is not good to be, as they say, it's a weird thing to think about. But finishing in the playoff places in League One is their worst ever league finish. Yeah. Like, that is sort of strange to think about. So if you're coming into this new and thinking, like, yeah, yeah, it's a League One team and we're pushing for promotion, we're doing really well, maybe that explains that level of, like, yeah, it's one of those games, whereas the fans are like, no, 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 we should be in the Premier League, like, let al- or, like we should be in the Championship, let alone the Premier League or whatever, you're going to be a little bit more angry. There's also a story that's sort of missing here. You mentioned the, the games that they don't show, mm-hmm. right? The game immediately after this 5-4 Coventry defeat, um, you, you see Jack Baldwin and his wife, and Jack Baldwin is the defender that is dropped out of the squad completely. Right. But Flanagan himself is also benched. Um, and mm. it's um, Ozturk starts alongside a 22-year-old defender named Jimmy Dunn, who's on loan mm. from Burnley. So Jack Rush completely changes his centre-backs for the next game. They win 2-0 and get a clean sheet. Is yep. at home to Doncaster. I would have liked to see that thing of Jack Ross making a big decision of dropping both his centre-backs, bringing in two new centre-backs into the starting eleven, getting a clean sheet at home after conceding five goals the previous week, right? that To me, that's a narrative that if we're going to be fair to Jack Ross, that needed to be told. Yeah, and I do think he he does make those changes because I forget who it is who scores the opening goal in the playoffs but then like he sticks with that same 11 uh not just because McGeady was injured like he he doesn't start Linden Gooch who he started in the first leg so we do see him sort of we sort of see him I should say making decisions that have immediate ramifications and seem to work out very well but maybe we don't get those highlighted enough so we can't really see the exact going on and the exact reason behind them I think because there's a narrative being shaped Mm -hmm. so there's not it's almost like there's not room to be fair to the coach I think Jack Ross comes out of this looking not as good as he should have i think he's like least served by the uh, by the documentary crew <laughs> um yes. and okay to move us ahead the mm. definitely then are um, a couple of games where it's sunderland hoping to get back in the top two and it just doesn't work out right there's the uh, the one one game against portsmouth where flanagan is back in the team and he scores but then yeah. there's the two one loss to fleetwood tiny tiny Fleetwood and afterwards the fans are coming out of the ground and they're all yelling at the camera things yeah. like um, I'm not very good at transcribing but I think they're mostly saying looking kite I don't quite know <laughs> what that means but that seems to be the popular phrase looking kite that they're all must be something about the Sunderland accent um, uh, there's but, a lot of bo- bottling being yelled out yes. there's a lot of SHI, SHI things being yelled and then there's yeah. not good enough get rid of Ross that sort of thing yeah that I means so the, it feels like the fans turn really quickly I think mm. it actually given that there are more games than are shown they turn a little slower right but it's essentially the frustration of not being in the automatic promotion spots like they were expecting and then to me seeing the size of Fleet Woods ground after seeing Sunderland it's a constant reminder every time you see an away game how much bigger Sunderland are than all the other teams in League One yeah and 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 then also how much more painful that must be to be in that stand and sort of think like oh like you would normally be terrified because in normal situations the only reason this would be happening is like we got a bad draw on the FA Cup and so now we're here uh, and instead, it's like, not only are we here playing you in a league game, but we're losing. Yep. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, so, yeah, Stadium of Light is like this giant Star Destroyer. Yeah. And they keep going and losing to some beat-up old X-Wings. I would, Yeah, I would go so far <laughs> as to say, I'm going to assume that Fleetwood's home ground completely sold out probably still doesn't reach the number that Sunderland do when they have their worst home game attendance. Exactly. Do you want to talk about that? The, um, so one, mm-hmm. one of the big, big things is that against Portsmouth in the, the home leg of the two-legged semi-final, the playoff semi-final, um, Sunderland, which holds, what, forty-seven or 49,000? They only get 27,000 people to come and see uh, the home leg of this playoff. 
Yeah. I think the reason given is that um, the oh, the veteran, the guy who went to Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan, I keep forgetting his name. Is it Andrew? I was um, looking that up. I can't remember either. It's the guy who with the red and white beard for, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. for the Czech mm-hmm. Trophy final. I really like him. Um, me too. He, More he, on him later for me. He turned 40 on camera, right? Um, he, <laughs> he He made the very important point that your season ticket doesn't get you into the playoff games. So all these right. people who had season tickets, they would have had to buy a fresh ticket uh, for for this home leg to be there. And then on top of that, they've already had to pay to go down to Wembley. They're thinking if we go down to Wembley again, I'll have to, you know, buy that ticket, buy yeah. the train ticket, maybe take some days off, that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe not days off because it'd be the weekend. But you know what I'm saying? Like, so people are just being a bit yeah. budget conscious, essentially. And in the end, I sort of agree with someone who said that 27,000 is not that bad, all things considered. No, it's not. Uh, and I, I do still wish that we could have gotten an idea of, like, we're Sunderland playing unattractive soccer, and that's part of where this sort of consternation comes from, this frustration comes from, because even if they're, like, winning and drawing, mostly drawing, like, it seems like that would be okay. But maybe if it's just really boring, and they do say earlier in the season, like, in the past, we were playing really poorly, but Josh Maja would get one chance and he would take it, so we would get that one nil win, yeah. and now we don't have him to do that. And I do wonder if maybe their performances were just sort of dull and uninspired and thus that led to this sort of feeling of like oh they're not motivated they're not trying why would i shell out full price for another game that they might not win so obviously we haven't watched full matches of sunderland um in this season in this division i've looked at lineups and looked at highlights but i can't get a proper feel for it but it seems like one guy that isn't mentioned much but is on camera a lot is charlie wyke the center forward Mm -hmm. and he's basically a big target man right and a lot of games they end up playing a sort of four five one with one big target man and mm-hmm. it seems like maybe someone like mcgeady is a bit of magic who he can add to that but it seems like that seems like uh not a defensive but like it's not an all-out exciting attack type type situation no but it's also an indicator of maybe how not good will grigg was for the team or in training because that's basically what he's brought in to do, right? Like, maybe he can play in a front two, but he can also be the sort of target guy if that's what you need him to be. That he I is don't know. sitting on he's the bench. More, I think he's more of a poacher. So I think it's meant to be more like he's he's the guy who could play alongside someone like Charlie Wake, right? He's not the target man that goes up there and wins balls in the air. Then, so maybe, maybe it, it like is. This. But maybe it is that they don't, like, maybe Ross is being conservative and he doesn't want to go with two forwards. Like, he can't afford to go Wyke and Grigg because maybe he feels like he needs more bodies in midfield. So maybe that is a slightly cautious approach is to only pick one striker at a time and go with an extra central midfielder. Still think it's kind of a big deal that that's the uh, the player that they broke the record to sign. Yeah. And uh, Stuart Donald said, like, that's who that's who Jack wanted. Uh, we know that maybe that wasn't entirely true. Yeah. But I feel he like wanted that him was for a... one and a quarter million pounds. And he wanted him to yeah. play alongside Josh Madger to begin with. Yes. I, like, I mean, that, that probably does make a big difference. <laughs> uh, but that, that it was sort of, I guess in my mind, though, another, and like maybe it was just pragmatism. It was he just wants one guy who can be the big target striker. That still felt like another moment of, of like, gutsiness from Jack Ross that like he's not starting their record player yeah. because Charlie White was in form and scoring goals. I, I did think that made sense. I did enjoy a little, or did dislike, excuse me, a little bit again of this sort of narrative building that I think was... Maybe un- untrue, like in that, um, the going back to the, the 5-4 game against Coventry, like they do sort of imply that Aiden McGeady wasn't playing, then he comes in, he's this all-important player, and he gets the assist for the goal. Aiden McGeady did not get that assist. They say, like, McGeady plays him in, and, like, Wyke scores. Wyke didn't score that goal. So it also felt a little bit like they're trying to kind of focus on those bigger names. Yeah. But that just stood out to me because they mentioned Wyke being involved, and he is the one who basically makes the run to set up the goal. He, he like, squares it, I think, for the assist. And I think that's the start of so- him then getting more games as that starter i think he was coming back from injury essentially as well that's the mm-hmm. reason josh madger maybe started more games towards the start of the season is because white started the season injured i remember reading that somewhere but are you saying mcgeady like they sort of edited it to make him look like he got an assist when he didn't they say like mcgeady plays in white and like sooner than take the lead and it's like mcgeady maybe plays in white white plays in somebody else who scores the goal I see. So they're sort of yeah. building the narrative of McGeady because his um, pain-killing injections and his inability yeah. to play in the semi-finals mm-hmm. are not what until the last twenty minutes of the final um, because of those pain-killing injections. So they're building the narrative, right? And being sort of the hero in the Checker Trade Trophy that he scores both goals too. I see. I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Before um, before we get to the the actual games, there's also I think a yeah. really interesting scene with Stuart Donald and his I think girlfriend Laura Clark, where mm-hmm. she's essentially saying to him. 
you don't need to own this team, right? And yeah. Stuart Dahan's argument is, but the boys, the boys love going with me to uh, to watch the game. And she says, you can still go and stand with the fans. You don't have to own the team to do that. And I think Laura Clark is very, very right about that. You think so? Yes. Yes, I mean, he's con- Stuart Donald is constantly stressed out about this football team. Yeah. And he, he ends this discussion about whether it's a good idea to sell the team or not by saying, if you think this year you've seen me stressed, then wait for next year. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> and I think like she makes she makes references to some things we haven't seen, but like like attacks on him on Twitter, yeah, uh, and maybe attacks on them because it sounds like their relationship was uh, slightly contentious uh, in terms of the way it began. We'll leave it at that. People can do googling if they want to. Well, she's, uh, let's say but- she is not the mother of those children. New. Uh, and so maybe it was some attacks there, some attacks from the media, but then also I think probably some fans going at him. And as we said, as he said in the very beginning, Stuart Donald is an emotional man who, by his own admission, gets overly emotionally connected and overly emotionally invested. And my assumption would be that he then takes that stuff. I feel like he's the type to read every tweet and take it personally. Yeah. And I'm guessing he got a lot of negative tweets uh, around this time and even before. Oh dear. All right. Mm. Shall we, uh, before we talk about the, the, yeah. the home leg against Portsmouth, uh, let's maybe think about upping our game, Taylor, in terms of how we're dressed. Because today's Total Soccer Show is sponsored by, you guessed it, the Black Tucks. It is. Uh, the Black Tux helps you find your perfect fit without having to leave home. They uh, help you find the right suit or tuxedo for whatever event you might be looking for a suit or tuxedo for. Uh, and I would say this. Watching uh, Sunderland go to uh, the Check and Trade Trophy final and then the playoff final, I look at those suits and those feel like like suits that were sort of designed or like like brought together maybe like 15 years ago and that just became the Sunderland uniform. It's like kind of dark blue, blue suit, white shirt, red striped tie that's the Sunderland look <laughs> and I feel like they could do with an upgrade because some of those suits don't seem to be the best fit they don't kind of look the best and I think I, maybe what the Sunderland people need to do is utilize the black tux to kind of like reinvent the look I feel like black tuxedo red tie or black suit red tie white shirt now suddenly I think we're cooking or maybe if you're Stuart Donald get something that fits so it doesn't show also your that, belly so it doesn't yeah. show your belly and even if Stuart Donald is not good at sizing himself he mm-hmm. could use the find my fit option and just answer some basic questions like height, weight, and shoulder size. Um, and the blacktux.com will help him get set up with a suit right. that I know he's got lots of money. I don't know, maybe he's a little short. He said he couldn't afford to pay the pizza man after they bought mm-hmm. Will Grigg. So if yep. he can't afford to rent the suit, sorry, if he can't afford to buy the suit, he yeah. could afford to rent the suit. And if I, he- I hope that that sizing thing has, like, I wish it had a, like, what size do you think you are? And then, like, <laughs> you can sort of be generous to yourself. And then it's like, okay, but what are you really? <laughs> If you want to get the fit right Mm. and have your event be remembered for the right reasons, you can order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and you can enjoy 10% off with the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com, code SOCCER for 10% off. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment, and that moment could be, let's say, the uh, promotion playoffs. <laughs> let's head back to those promotion playoffs uh, against Port... Uh, no, it's not... Is it Portsmouth? Yeah, it's start? Portsmouth. It's, yes. like, it's sort of revenge for the Checker Trade Trophy final yeah. in what I think something until I die season two should have been called the, the Kenny Jacket season. Because <laughs> Kenny Jacket is back with Portsmouth. Um, but this time, Portsmouth come to the Stadium of Light only 27,000 fans because, as Charlie says, whatever I'm doing hasn't worked this time. As if all the ticket sales depend on the genius of Charlie Methvin. He felt for the first time, Daryl, like what he was doing wasn't working. That's <laughs> revealing right there. So maybe, uh, maybe he can make up for it by just being really rude to uh, the media guy. Yeah, I'm sure he will. Did you, know, did you notice that? Um, uh, the, which media guy? Uh, before I think I think his name's Oscar, and he says uh, mm-hmm. before before the meeting, one thing oh, you can, Oscar Chamberlain. Yes, mm-hmm. Oscar Chamberlain. Before the meeting. He says, without looking up from his computer, one thing you can do for me is find out the ticket sales. Yeah. Do you know how I would have asked that question? Hey, Oscar, before can the meeting... please go find out the ticket sales? Would you please find out the ticket sales? I'd be really interested to hear them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what? Pick up the phone yourself and call the ticket sales people. He, I feel like there must be so many people then turn away and roll their eyes to him because mm-hmm. like, cause he, and the thing he's then like struggling to get a clarification on the person, like Oscar is already telling him and he's like, I, I know we need to know like all in, uh, was like hospitality tickets as well. Basically yep. tickets we gave away. Are we counting those two? Yeah. And he says like, yep, all in. Like I've already answered this. You need to stop interrupting me so I can explain <laughs> fully, but whatever. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Mm-hmm. All right, that's enough Charlie complaining because they do a good job, I think, in the, the home leg mm-hmm. of uh, not showing Charlie yelling things. 
Yes, right? true. He is noticeably yep. quiet in the home leg uh, when Sunderland are winning. And I think this is a choice on the part of the filmmakers, right? To not repeat the Checker Trade Trophy final mm-hmm. thing of just having Charlie constantly yell things. If we're going to stick with Charlie for a moment, because I don't think we need to really talk about him in the final... I will add in the final, did you notice that he's sitting behind his girlfriend, partner, wife, whatever she may be? No, I didn't. It was a very strange seating arrangement. He's seated behind her, and he has to like lean in and talk to her. And I, and, I, and I felt like that was just a weird, like maybe he needed to be around some people that he was trying to woo, or investors, or what have you. But it also felt a little bit like maybe she was like, I'm not sitting next to you this yes, time. Yes, that, that could be it. <laughs> but then also I'm sitting immediately downwind of you screaming. So I don't know if that worked much better either for her. But here, yeah, we, we have Charlie in the stands looking exasperated, looking tense, uh, but maybe a little bit relieved at the end of this one because Sunderland do come away with a 1-0 win. They do. It's uh, the Maguire Valley. It's a really, really nice goal. Yeah, sure. We can give it to Maguire, but I think what we should really be focusing on the fact is that Lyndon Gooch starts and then they win. Yes. So all credit to Lyndon Gooch and you're welcome, Sunderland. America did it. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, yes. Big moment in this first leg mm-hmm. of the semi-final. Ozturk, the... Uh, did the, you research this? The new defender that's coming. I this. Yes. Ozturk okay. is sent off in the 60-somethingth minute for, um, I think it's for denial of goal scoring opportunity because he slide tackles mm-hmm. when somebody is through on goal. Um, Portsmouth don't score from the resulting free kick. Sunderland hold on with only 10 men. But after being sent off, Ozturk just magically appears in the starting 11 he again Interesting. for the second leg. So what's yep. happened is um, the Sunderland yep. appealed it and... Uh, the, the board agreed that, uh, that it wasn't a goal-scoring opportunity. He shouldn't have been sent off. The red card was rescinded and Ozturk is free to play. Again, this is one of those moments where personally, I would have been fascinated to see the drama of the appeal mm-hmm. and trying to get it done in time for the, uh, the all-important second leg. That would have been proper soccer drama to me. Instead, How it was bad just, do you uh, think his second leg game was? Because I, I wonder if they set that up of like, they get him back. Because that is, you're right, that's the narrative of like, oh, they, they appeal, they put it all together, they win, he gets to play, and then he has like a last-ditch tackle, and that's why they go through to the final. And I wonder if he just had like a shambles game in that second leg, and they're like, <laughs> never mind, <laughs> this won't work. Even we can't miss leadingly edit it this together so i, I <laughs> to make this up as, look good i looked this up as well <laughs> i saw him immediately i just want to re-emphasize <laughs> that um uh, i looked this up as well and what i kept seeing as you said was like the red card was overturned the red card was overturned i couldn't really find like a great explanation so you you're saying it's because it it wasn't denial of a goal scoring opportunity yeah because apparently um i've forgotten who it is that he tackles but he was mm-hmm. technically dribbling away from goal uh, when the slide tackle comes in. So it's not denial of goal scoring opportunity. Because I saw some people arguing that it was submitted as like there was no contact or the contact was after the ball was gone. It doesn't really matter. You know the what? thing that I thought was interesting. That's the stuff we could know if it, this was included yeah. in the documentary. This is what I want Sunderland Till I Die to be. It's behind the scenes on stuff like this. This was the third red they'd had overturned this season. Yes. That's the other thing I learned from, that would from, be a, narrative. from a Reddit post, I think. Yeah, oh. I would have enjoyed hearing about that because it, it was it builds into that narrative of like the refs are against them. The refs are cheating. The refs don't want them to play well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, we don't get much of that. Instead, we got Osterk magically back on the field. <laughs> but he is back for the second leg, mm-hmm. uh, which they do draw. Right. So this is how Sunderland get to the final. For me, the most interesting thing about the second leg is seeing Stuart Donald, yep. owner of the club, going and standing with the away fans and yelling himself hoarse and swearing mm. and basically acting like a rowdy Sunderland fan. Turning and pink. Turning as pink, pink as the seats used to be at the Stadium of Life. <laughs> I don't think you can fake that. He no. is... He would be the professional crier on Curb Your Enthusiasm if he was that good at that. Yeah. He is not, I don't think that's fake. I think that's genuine passion. Yeah. I also think that's the reason he should not own a football club. If you are really? capable of getting that worked up about a game, you are also the type of person who will make terrible decisions on transfer deadline day. I mean, example. Mark Cuban made, Mark Cuban, I guess, well, Mark Cuban was a bad owner for a while, but Mark Cuban gets that worked up. It's why he gets tossed out of games all the time, or he used to at least. He's since calmed down and become a Shark Tank person and now, uh, I guess an economic consultant. Let's move on quickly but from you, that conversation. Do you, get what I'm, do you get what I'm saying, though? Yeah, that you, I do. You should be cold and calculating, and you really should be able to see things mm-hmm. at one remove if you're the owner, because you're supposed to have the you're supposed to be able to see the bigger picture and make decisions instead of going in and like standing with the fans and yelling things. Yeah, and I think he has made. 
I, I had a friend once. I will keep this uh, vague at that and just say I had a friend who made that fatal mistake of like he would blame stuff on his girlfriend to his friends when he didn't want to do things. He'd be like, oh, she doesn't want me to. And then when he wanted to, he would tell her like, oh, they're begging me to do it, so I'll go do it. Yeah. And so it became the situation when like she didn't like the friends and the friends didn't like her. And then when they when we like had a conversation once, it was like, oh, so it's just him. Okay, we know this now. And I do feel like Stuart Donald did this a little bit to himself where he's clearly – like venting to his wife so much that, or his girlfriend, I guess, uh, so much that she says, "Like, well, why are you doing this? Then you shouldn't own it." And I think in that moment, that's when he starts, like, "Well, the boys really want to go. The boys love it." And I think, mm-hmm. like, we have an indicator here of why he's doing. It. Like, he loves it. He he gets so into it, but then also he gets so into it when things are going well. When things are going poorly, you assume that that level of emotion is there. It's just negative emotion. Yes. So I take your point. Like, I I think that I think I'm forgiving of it because. I, I think I like him. I think I like Stuart Donald. I, th- I do have sympathy for him, and I think he does mean well, albeit like f- for a person who made a bunch of money in the insurance industry and then I think branched out and has like 17 companies. So, you know, there's mistrust there of anybody who's like a corporate maven. But that said, like I do like him, but I take your point that maybe a very emotional person who can get too emotional and thus have that influence his decision making can probably lead you astray. I, I think he looks good in comparison to Charlie Methman. <laughs> But that doesn't necessarily make him a likable person in his own right. How about that? What 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 has he done that that makes you not like him? I just feel like he's ultimately kind of selfish. Like he he mm. makes a lot of. I see someone making a lot of selfish decisions, right? Um, like maybe the marital situation can put to one side. That doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of him like like saying it's the kids that want to go when really it's him that wants to keep going to the games as the owner um, and as a fan. The Will Grigg decision where everybody is telling yeah. him, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's not for the good of the club, but he does it just because he wants it. I just feel like it's, there's a lot of selfish decisions See, from someone who's putting forward like a friendly, like, oh, I'm everybody's chum kind of face, but ultimately does mm-hmm. whatever he wants to do. I think the Will Grigg one is a big one, but I think the reason why I don't have as big of an issue, and we can move on after this, but I think this is interesting, is is that I 100% see that as him being scared about what people are going to say about him if he doesn't do it. Like, I don't necessarily see that. I'm not saying that makes it better, but I, I don't see that as much as him being like, I want this guy. I'm going to state my reputation on getting this big name and that's going to do it. And like, that's what I want. I don't see it as much of like an Abramovich. This is just a player I want in the team and I'm going to make it happen no matter what. I felt that was more of a, like people are going to be really mad at me because Josh Maj is gone and I haven't replaced him. I've got to replace him with somebody. So I will go over the top to buy them and even better, like spend even more money on this player. And mm-hmm. then they'll be really happy. Not saying that is better, but that's why it's a more sympathetic thing to me. But because I, I think he is constantly thinking what will make the fans not hate me. I actually don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with one word you've said, but I still think that's selfish because he's putting his own reputation with the fans ahead of the good of the football club. That's why I call him selfish is because he really just keeps thinking about how does this make Stuart Donald look? It is It is occurring to me that when we have our conversation about how we would fix Sunderland, I'm going to guess this conversation will factor into your plan for how you would fix it. <laughs> that okay. is coming towards the end of today's right. episode. But right. first, Taylor, mm-hmm. let's get ourselves down to Wembley for the League One final. But first of all, we should we should get the train from Newcastle City Centre. We should yeah. hold up our Sunderland flag. We should mm-hmm. yell at some Newcastle fans across the street, away the lads! And then yeah. we should take a celebratory drag on our cigarette. Oh, Lynn. <laughs> I love Lynn. I love Lynn too. I, again, I feel like this is a strange episode because we had an entire episode about going to London for the check and trade trophy. And then like suddenly it's like, oh, we're going to the final. Like, okay, that happened. Cool. We're on the way. Let's let's get it going. Yeah, I and think they it's get into they, it right away. They've done all that stuff before, right? That's honestly, probably true. if you're yeah. trying to hype up the check and trade trophy final to give it some drama for mm-hmm. episode five, then the best thing to hype up about the Checker Trade Trophy final is that it's at Wembley, right? So that's where all your yep. Wembley eggs go in that season gotcha. episode five basket. Um, mm-hmm. For episode six, the drama has to be not so much about going to Wembley, but about the potential of going up to the Premier League. Yeah. yeah. And, and short of them winning either of those competitions, for the documentary makers, this really was like the perfect narrative again aside from them getting promoted and getting win winning things like losing in a penalty shootout that builds the drama and like scoring a last second equalizer in that game to force it to penalties also a lot of drama and then in this one the very very late winner that sees uh charlton advance uh also quite a bit of drama maybe not what they would have hoped for in terms of uh celebrations at the end but still good narrative for sure and if you're a Sunderland fan um, it looked like it was all going to go right, right? It really so the did. playoff final against Charlton starts 
five minutes in with an own goal from Charlton defender, Saar. I went and mm-hmm. had a look at this, like it, not on the not not Sunderland until I die replay, but you know the actual mm-hmm. replay. I think I know how this happened. Saar okay. doesn't look. He doesn't oh. look back. I think he saw where his goalkeeper Phillips was. Then he's like, he's kind of, he, it's kind of a no look pass because he's faking like he's going upfield. So as he plays it back, he doesn't realise that his goalkeeper Phillips has moved quite a lot to the left. So Oof. that's why he sort of places it around him. It's a no look pass back to your goalkeeper. It's one of the dumbest things you can do as a centre back, honestly. Yeah. So especially like hitting it with pace as well. Yes. So Sunderland really got off to a great start here. One nil. Isn't that why? Isn't that why you're taught? Isn't that why you're taught if you're going to pass it back that you're supposed to, even if you're passing it to the goalkeeper, he knows that pass is coming or she knows that pass is coming, you're still supposed to pass it outside of the goal frame? Yeah, I mean, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I just coach that definitely. Just because then you you minimize the, or you eliminate the chance of that actually happening. So a no-look back pass, five minutes in, not the best Yeah, a no-look on-target back pass, not so good. (laughs) Not so good. (laughs) We have the Purrington equalizer in the Mm -hmm. 35th minute. I think I found who to blame here. Um, so um, our friend Andrew, um, mm-hmm. the, I believe it's Andrew, the veteran, um, mm-hmm. he was saying, look at the line. The line's all wrong. I think yep. referring to the offside line. But what actually happened is I think Morgan, the winger, um, yep. lets Purrington go. Purrington runs okay. in behind him and Morgan just forgets to go with him. It's one of those classic like brain freeze mistakes, I think. See, and... and, and- all right, I'll stop nitpicking after this, or at least I'll try to. But like, uh, this is the thing. Like, if you're gonna make a documentary about soccer, you won't. I won't. <laughs> but like, like, I, and I apologize if people like really enjoyed this and just want us to hear us say nice things because there are nice things to be said. It's just, again, I wish we could sort of know that because from a soccer standpoint, and maybe that's the thing is that I'm just watching this from an entirely I like soccer. I want to see the tactics and the soccer actually being played and not the human drama as much. Yeah, but like. If there were a, these players keep switching off and like, is the club cursed? Are we haunted? Why can't we put a whole game together? And we hear that every now and then, like, this is so us at the end of the last game. And then, yeah. like, we, we cannot defend a 1-0 lead. We always panic. Like, that sort of is forced upon us via, like, it's almost expository dialogue yeah. to help us understand what's happening. And I wish we had seen, like, oh, we keep switching off on our marking and here it happened again. Because then it helps me understand, like, oh, maybe Jack Ross isn't a good manager. Instead, I'm just sort of like, oh, I, I guess I, the goal, it's 1-1. One, one. The one, it happened. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. I think this is, a, it's a total soccer show problem, right? Is we always want to Probably know why. So. And we feel mm-hmm. like Sunderland Till I Die is in a position to show us why. But then they they don't. I mean, without naming names, we had um, a listener who knows a lot about football and football broadcasting <laughs> who contacted yeah. us to say... <laughs> we'll call him Panayotis. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's not for you guys. Uh, maybe it's, like it, it's, for, the, it's yeah. for a broader, non-soccer-specific audience. And I, think, I believe we were called Snow. I think that might be... We were called Old Etonians, <laughs> which is a good burn. Um, and... They might be right. I think they might be yeah. right, but it's still, yeah. I can't help wanting what I want. You know what I mean? It should be Sunderland yeah. till I why. That's the show I want to see. <laughs> Sunderland till yeah. I why did that happen? <laughs> Sunderland till I why. That's the one that we should do. That should be our companion podcast. We're not going to do that. Don't worry, people. I saw the tweet today that was probably a joke that Amazon is sold out of podcast mics. Um, don't worry. We're not going to do another one. Um, but I, I guess, I guess all I'm getting at is that there are things in this, in this second season, especially that feel like, it's like two people were locked in a room and came out like with b- both with like black eyes and they're like, no, nothing happened. What are you talking about? It was fine. Like we just had normal conversation. It's just like I know there is stuff in here that we're not seeing because yeah. things definitely seem way more tense than they should be for how things have gone. Yeah. And maybe it just is that they're still going to be in League One and everybody is kind of coming to terms with that. But like for how bleak and sad everybody is, it still also does feel like – but like – they kind of did okay. This was, albeit their worst finish in like a table standpoint, but also like, hey, they're in the playoffs. Yeah. At least they weren't relegated again. Wembley twice. Wembley twice. I mean, there was yeah. the moment when Stuart Donald was coming out of that Portsmouth away game. Is like, if we win the final, this is a great season, right? Because yeah. we've been to Wembley twice, mm-hmm. uh, won a bunch of games. Anyway, back to the action. All right, so we're, yeah. we're going through the narrative of the final here. It's 1-1. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second half, Luke O'Neill has a what looks like a serious head injury you see yeah. his legs go a bit like uh, mm-hmm. spaghetti-ish and he says afterwards I had wobbly legs for a second yeah. that is a sign of a traumatic a brain injury a concussion yeah. yeah how is how does he play the rest of this game wrapping like some black wrap around the top of his head um, no, that's it I'm, I don't understand why concussion protocols weren't in effect here because they're they're established they're in League One right they're supposed to look after Luke O'Neill 
Are you not familiar with that? That that is the concussion protocol. Wrap some stuff around your head. You're fine. Brain good. It keeps the brains in. Brain no bruise. <laughs> Here, wrap this around so your brain doesn't. That's actually fall out. what you say when they wrap the tape around it. Brain no bruise no more. <laughs> brain no bruise no more. So I, I don't know the story here, but um, mm-hmm. and actually, Luke, Luke and I, it seems like he was fine. They, they should not have taken that risk. This is, I, I assume, a refereeing problem uh, of some sort. Yeah. Um, I'll mm-hmm. move on. Otherwise, it's just me ranting about concussion protocol. That's fair. Um, we see Johnny Williams come off the bench, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just like, it's almost like a cameo, right? <laughs> this is like, <laughs> this is like when one of the main cast of Friends showed up in Jury. But doesn't he, <laughs> does he drop, does anything come from that free kick or do they miss that free kick no, that they, he draws? They, yeah, they, okay. they, they miss it. He has a couple of crosses that don't go anywhere, but they, it's just a bit, like I'm saying, it's a cameo of like, here's someone you remember from the past, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I did kind of want good things for him because he is very likable in that first season. Yes. I mean, if anything, we're kind of missing a Johnny Williams uh, in in this season, right? Yeah, I think that's what Luke O'Neill was meant to be. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, all but right, not quite. McGeady comes on, but like he doesn't uh-huh. have much to offer because he probably uh-huh. isn't fit enough to be playing. Um, this guy's a shot. In the 94th minute, Bauer, mm-hmm. the centre-back, scores the winner for Charlton. If you go back and watch, talking about individual mistakes, oh, no. um, Bauer is genuinely unmarked at the far post. And not, it's not like someone loses him. It's not like um, he gives someone the slip. He's genuinely just wide open at the back post. There's some sort of marking mismatch. Um, I would love to know. Uh, this, we're sort of repeating what we said earlier, right? I would love to know the source of all these defensive errors at Sunderland. I'm going to guess it's Jack Ross. I'm going to guess it's these inexperienced defenders. Maybe I'll say that. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. So... Uh- even so, unmarked, I think, is not what you want in that situation. No. And you certainly don't want to go 2-1 two, two down in the final minute of uh, injury time. You do in not. The final. Words of wisdom from Taylor Rockwell. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> so I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> and then we have the scenes of the mm. very, very sad Sunderland fans. I really like the scene of... Um, I'm, Andrew? I th- I'm, I'm pre- is it Andrew? Definitely. I don't want to be getting his name I don't, right. I'm going with what you said. I don't, I don't care because I, I just want to get to that because that really was one of my favorite moments of the entire season. So this is when he hugs his son and says, we've been here yep. before, haven't we? We've been here before. And I think yep. he says, we're Sunderland till we die. And, and he I, said, applaud them off. And then he says, we're Sunderland till we die to make his son applaud off the players. <sighs> and I shouldn't say make. Like He, he like has his son turn around because his son, son is like hugging his chest, like clearly crying. Yeah. And then he says, like, oh, been here before, been here before, holds him for a while, then he says, like, applaud him off, we're Sunderland until we die, like, that's what you have to do. But I just loved it because there's the even more adorable scene, like, a minute before when they show the dad, like, a different dad, like, his head down on the railing and his son looks at him and then also does the same thing, because, like, that's what sadness looks like. But I appreciate that Andrew in that moment, like, knowing what we know about him from the past two seasons, you know how much that hurt him that moment and how sad he was. That he, like, he can say, like, Sunderland is his family and he loves that club more than anything, but that he is feeling that level of pain and yet still has the parental instincts to like take care of his kids yes, first that's it, is right? an incredibly poignant moment for me. Yeah, that's definitely it. That's definitely it. Andrew Camis. I've just looked up his name. Andrew Thank Camis. All right. uh, but yeah, yeah, I just thought that was, that was very touching. It's the thing of Andrew and that, uh, that it's, it's the thing of Andrew looking outside of himself and looking to take care of his son, basically, yep. in that mm-hmm. moment, right? Rather than just being mad that his team mm-hmm. lost a football match, yeah. And there's also, I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. It's the lady with dark hair. Um, she's very upset yeah. and she says, why is it never us celebrating? Mm-hmm. Why is it never us? Which yeah. kind of it kind of broke my heart, but yeah. all those moments just made me think. I wish we'd spent more time with the fans and less time with those rich guys. She she broke my heart, and then uh, um, I'm assuming her husband doubly so because he clearly has no answer and like really can't like. There's nothing you can say in that moment. It, there's a good line in the Good Place about like one of the most human experiences you could have is your friend going through the worst experience imaginable and there's just nothing you can do to help. Yeah, and that is like that's a human moment of just like yeah, you can't say anything there. You just have to be like. I, I know yeah. it sucks or like you just have to stay silent and he stays silent but yeah I, I feel for both of them in that moment and then this whole thing ends with our favourite Peter the taxi mm-hmm. driver do you know the, the final line of the of the season I typed it up because it was so good I uh, said like I, I don't want to be in London next season right yeah it's essentially saying he doesn't want to have to go to the playoffs next season yeah. he says I don't want to be in London in an underground station <laughs> I yep. just want to see Sunderland win the league at the Stadium of Light end of story Finished. And then roll credits. End of story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. 
projecting forward into the future, I don't think that's what he's going to get, right? I think Sunderland no. aren't even in the playoff spots in 2019. No, they're mid-table. 20? Oh, dear. They might make the mm. playoffs, I think. I think it's possible. Um, so, uh, I mean, uh, presuming this season resumes. Yes, presuming. Um, so any close, before we talk about like how we would fix Sunderland, uh, some very uh, grandiose talk from us, um, any final thoughts on Sunderland Till I Die, episode six, or uh, as a series as a whole? Yeah, I'll say this. If you're a Sunderland fan, like, watching that and looking for reasons for optimism, it did occur to me after the fact that, like, that ending is maybe reason for optimism in that, like, there's no insane drama at the end of the season. There's no relegation. There's no, oh, new ownership. There's no Jack Ross sacked immediately. And, like, maybe that's what stability looks like is just like, well, I hope we do it next year. We'll see next year, like, and then it ends. Like, like that is what a stable club looks like. It's just like, all right, well, season's over. We'll start with preseason, and we'll hope we do better next year. Like, as opposed to we're in free fall and we don't know what we're going to do next. So at least maybe that's a little bit of positivity. But but we do know we do know what happens next, right? Yeah, Jack Ross (laughs) is fired a few games into the season. Uh, Phil Parkinson takes over and I think does turn things around eventually. Aidan mm. McGeady is uh, transfer listed and then loaned out to Charlton yep. of all mm. clubs. Um, and Stuart Donald eventually, I think around December 2019, puts the club mm. up for sale. So yeah, well, in the I, moment, I agree it that it felt like moment. things were getting better. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The, mm. This should be like a little mini featurette, right? Like they, they don't do the whole documentary thing. Maybe this should just be... Um, each season, a quick update on what's happened at Sunderland Football Club. Yeah. I feel like it would just be like, went bad, got rid. <laughs> Every single talking <laughs> head would just be that. <laughs> um, one final thing I want to mention, Taylor, uh-huh. is um, Chris Farnham, TSS listener, sent us a link to the Wise Men Say podcast. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this on the last episode we did. Um, I want to put a link to... So Wise Men Say are a Sunderland podcast. They're featured in a, a few episodes of this. Um, they have essentially a review of the entire thing from their more insider perspective mm-hmm. and i will say it's re- it's a really good episode i haven't listened to any other of their episodes but it seems like a really good podcast i love to shout out really good soccer podcasts i think this might be one and to hear their take on sunderland till i die um from the inside is absolutely fascinating so i will put a link to wise men say um in the show notes uh the one thing oh, oh will you excuse me Oh, will you? I will indeed. This All is right. why one listener, I think, when, you know, we asked for people to compare us to uh, TV show characters. Uh-huh. Someone, and I, I said, tweet them at us. I've forgotten the name, sorry, but someone tweeted last night to say that I might be like Hermes from Futurama. <laughs> Why is that? Because I'm doing all the admin. I'm like saying, well, this will be in the show notes and we'll, we'll rubber stamp that. <laughs> you do love being technically correct. That is true. That is technically correct. I'm also um, a World Limbo champion. Um, so, so didn't know that. One, one major thing, um, mm. don't ask me to prove it. One major thing from the episode of the Wise Men Say podcast goes back to um, that, the game where they sold out the stadium or didn't, nearly sold mm. out the stadium on Boxing Day. Ah, right, right. Um, I think you and I have texted about this, right? But we haven't talked mm-hmm. about it on the show. There was a major fan initiative called the Gift of Football where um, fans were encouraged, like well-off fans were encouraged to buy tickets for less well-off fans. And that wasn't included in the episode. Yeah. Why, why do you think that was? I don't know. I think this might be a thing of like not confusing the narrative and like maybe making it look like Charlie had a win and it was Charlie mm-hmm. that like managed to yell at everyone until more tickets were sold. <laughs> but instead there was a, yeah. a fan initiative that the club did promote, but really came from the fans, not from Charlie or the staff that got yelled at. Yeah, but it, it also may well have been. And that like, yes, that should have been in there. But also probably in terms of the murkiness of, of documentary making, like that in of itself could probably be its own episode about this fan initiative that led to like, you kind of can't have both of those at the same time. And if you're trying to show maybe what is happening and how you're having to get rid of people and how Charlie's abrasive tactics can be problematic, maybe adding that in would be a little bit confusing. It's probably why this documentary does need like webisodes or something like that to have little things that you can then see relating to the episode as to like stuff that was on the cutting room floor, but maybe could have been in there and maybe this would have been one of those things. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think so too. All right, that, that's all I have to say because otherwise I'll be, uh-huh. I'll be banging on forever. Do you want to move on to how we would fix Sunderland? Sure. All right, I would invite you to go first. Um, I would not have them taken over by the uh, Saudi royal family to start. Yeah, uh, so that's the, I, that's the rumor at Newcastle right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get into that if and when it happens. How about that? But it's going to provide a contrast between Sunderland and Newcastle. We'll say that. Yeah, yeah I mean, all right. So I, I think like 
like I'm just going to focus on the squad for a moment. I'm going to say that I do think the way they go about getting players, it is probably born of not having a lot of money yeah. and therefore not being able to sign like the best players and really, really exciting prospects and such. But you look at the way Sunderland have been doing it, uh, like in between the season in, in the in the show and then the kind of current season, 2019-2020, uh, five players brought in uh, on free transfers, most of them from the championship. I think the only one who wasn't was Kyle Lafferty, who obviously has experience in the championship uh most of them being older i think the youngest was like 26 most of them late 20s early 30s mm-hmm. the players that went like out, 32 i'm pretty sure yeah he's up there uh f- and then they had six players leave uh most of them again on free transfers the only ones who they made a profit on uh george honeyman who features prominently in this episode sold to hull city for four hundred eighty-four thousand uh dollars i should add and lamina kone who was in the first season not in this one because he was on loan uh is eventually sold to the club where he was on loan for 1.65 million so two million uh two and a half million brought in uh from player transfers but really not that much especially with like what we saw them spend on will grigg as an example yeah. so you have this system in which they're not spending money to bring in players, but not making any money with the players that are leaving. And as a result, they're basically bringing in sort of free contract, out of favor, championship players who are older, who didn't fit with their teams. But like, I think there's this thinking of, well, they were in the championship, and that means they should be good enough to like get us through the championship and be really good in League One. And then maybe they're not, or maybe they're not as fit, or maybe they're carrying injuries. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like they're going the sort of more modern route of, like sign very young players. They only had a couple. Like Luke O'Neill, I think was brought in from League Two. Yeah. Um, I forget. There's one more, I think, as well. And like that seems like a very possible route for signing young, exciting players. Put them in your squad, develop them, sell them on. Hopefully, move up. But at the very least, you start sort of getting your squad younger and younger and younger, and then you become a club where you have young players coming through, and people can kind of buy into them and buy stock in them. It's what like we saw that one couple buy Luke O'Neill's jersey and get it signed and frame it, and like the more. Or you can do that with oh, young you mean, players. Oh, you mean by I emotional stock, not like not third party ownership. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that's a big thing in my mind. Is that yeah. the more you're looking for just like out of favor championship players to drop down a level and then kill it because oh they're playing one level down. Yep. There's a reason why those players are free. Is I guess what I'm yep. getting. Yeah, and at. I would echo what you're saying here. I agree with what they're doing with championship players. They're also doing it with just players who are free and have some sort of reputation from the past. Kyle Lafferty, I know, I think had been to China or somewhere like that, and that's why he was like weirdly out of contract. So they were just... even or like Norway. He was it was so it was Yes, yeah, you're right, you're than, right. Yeah. yeah. But like he, Kyle Lafferty has a profile, especially in Scotland, right? Yeah. And I think that might be part of the reason why he was brought down. And very similar with um Ali I think he's Northern Ireland, by the way, but yes, I, I take your but point. But yeah, he played most of his best football in Scotland, yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um okay. Aliam Ozturk, the defender that we talked about mm-hmm. who came in. He came in on a free transfer last summer. He is a Dutch-born Turkish player. Um, he had just spent a year at Bolaspor in the Turkish second division before they signed him. I don't even know what that is. Exactly. Yeah. was available on a free transfer. And I think it was just that Jack Ross knew who he was because Ozturk had played three seasons at Hearts back when Jack Ross was also managing up in Scotland. So it seems to be yeah. a bunch of, oh, I sort of know that player from my time in Scotland. He's available on a free. Let's get him. We recognise Lafferty's name. Let's get him. He used to play in the Championship. He's available on a free. Let's get him. And I agree that that is not the way to build a team. Yeah, and, and I think like, extending it further, uh, I don't think it was Richard Hill, but that's what I remember it being. Was that, was that the name of the chief scout that they had? I don't know. Uh, but you know who I'm talking about, right? The one who advises Stuart Donald not to bid more for Will Grigg. Oh, who's in? The, he, he's in the same office as him at the time. Yeah, I want to say yeah. it's Richard Hill. I'm not confident, but yeah. Uh, regardless, that like I assume that guy was like, oh, the long term Sunderland scout until I remember. Oh, he's but, head, no, of, see there. head of football operations, kind of yeah. thing, right? Yeah, or like I assumed he had been there for a while until until I remembered that. No, we saw their director of scouting in the first season. He's the one who was like, oh, he's wearing gloves and it's not even cold. Yes, we don't need that guy. Oh, I forgot um, about that. No, the. Uh, if, if his name is Richard Hill, whoever it is, he was the, I believe, the head coach of Oxford United when Stuart Donald was there. So even there, like, they've brought a person who I think then gets sacked, then they bring him with them to Sunderland yeah. to kind of do this job. But think about that for a moment. Like, oh, it, no. It's again a, he was the, it, the Eastleigh manager. That's what it was. Eastleigh, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, but it's still like, it's a, it's a person who has, like, experience managing lower level. 
but isn't going to kind of be a like he's not looking at like younger promising players or like these like like 10 or 20 like U20 players that we could go after from different leagues around the world and kind of bring in for a little bit of money and hopefully develop and then kind of bring through and either sell on or have them be pivotal players it feels like it's a lot of let's retread some retreads and see what happens I 100% agree so I think we've come up with the same plan Taylor Um, Mm. but the the branding I've put on it is I think Sunderland should become mini Borussia Dortmund. (laughs) Okay. But what that involves, it involves a lot of what you just said, right? Signing young players, bringing them through, selling them on. But it involves having a defined style of play that everybody agrees. This is how we're going to play. This is the type of player we're looking for. Um, And it doesn't matter who the coach is, you roughly stick to that style of play, right? And I think all, all the players we just talked about, their defining characteristic is that they were available on a free transfer right? Yeah. It's not that they're yes. all pacey. It's not that they all like a certain style of football. It's just that they were available for free and they might be good. I will I will tell you this. Again, FIFA not being the best indicator, but I'm going to go with it for a moment. Uh, having defined my style of play as basically what Liverpool do, like aggressive high press, 4-3-3, uh, need a lot of pace to play. Uh, basically, I sold the entire squad because <laughs> there is no pace in that team. So yes, I will double down on your point. They're not bringing through like exciting, young, pacey players. It is definitely the number one uh, uh, qualifier is, are you available for free? Yeah. And, it doesn't, <laughs> and will you play here? And it doesn't have to be pace. Obviously, pace is like the most exciting kind of thing, but it could be, okay, yeah. we're going to be a possession team. And it doesn't matter who mm-hmm. the coach is. That is what defines us. We are True. going to only mm-hmm. bring through players from the Academy of Light and sign available players who are very, very comfortable with the ball and like can spot passes. And we, we're going to hold on to the ball and break, team da- break teams down like that. We're going to do positional, Dutch-style positional play, right? But yeah. at least just pick a style and then you build from there. Because like you said, if it's Richard Hill... He does not uh-huh. seem to be a sort of grand mastermind of like, here is, here is the way we're going to play. Everything else is built around that. So, yeah, I would. And even then, if you have the Academy of Light, when you have a defined style of play, yep. it can become like a mini uh, La Masia or a mini mm-hmm. like Ajax youth system where you're teaching those kids that style of play. So it's not just random, like occasionally you'll get a Josh Madger or, um, or a Jordan Henderson. It's you'll just be producing player after player after player that fits into your system. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that doesn't happen overnight, but that's the no. thing that Sunderland absolutely could build in League One because the parachute payments run out next year. Uh, true. Uh, and and I would add this, though, because like the thing that I think is important to distinguish here is like in the first season of Settle Until I Die, there is this thing where they realize like, OK, we're just going to have to go with academy players. Like basically we cannot afford people. And I think the key thing there is they're saying like and everybody who's available on a free is not good enough, is not going to fit what we need. So we're just going to have to go with academy kids. And that has this very negative tone because it's basically meaning we're playing people who probably aren't ready yet because we've got nobody else. And I think that's where your idea of no it's a defined style and system and then we're looking at younger players who can come in and do these roles maybe still some squad players maybe still some veterans to fill it out but like we we have this idea of a system and then we're bringing young kids through either from the academy or like in on transfers to then compete in that model that makes the huge distinction because otherwise it is just yeah we're just bringing in kids because they're cheaper and we can afford them and now we're just playing a bunch of 17 18 19 year olds now we're Bolton instead it's like, no, we've got an identifiable style and yeah. we're bringing in kids and adults to, to fit that system. And on, obviously I like it. that doesn't happen for free, right? You would no. have to invest money. And instead of like splurging money on someone like Will Grigg, what you have uh-huh. to do is really headhunt and find the right guy uh, to be the director of football. And then you keep them in the job long enough to produce results. You invest money in scouting. Like scouts mm-hmm. like will work for a lot less money than players, right? So you can invest mm-hmm. quite a lot of money um, or get quite a decent little scouting network. Maybe get some data analytics type people. Have some people trawling through Scouts, just looking for mm-hmm. um, looking for players that will fit your system. It is possible Dale to and do. Taylor. We've got some ideas. Yeah. We I have mean, a whole scouting network. Yeah, we've already got a subscription. We wouldn't even, yeah. we wouldn't even expense it. Oh, I should add, that has also been very useful in terms of FIFA 20. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, there is like, you could look to emerging markets like Major League Soccer. There mm-hmm. definitely is value to be had in Major League Soccer. I know on your FIFA game, you signed like Paxton Pomacol and Jesus Ferreira. I don't, know how re- I don't know how realistic that is for Sunderland in League One. But I do think there's talent in the United States that might be tempted to go and play for a big, mm-hmm. big club like Sunderland if they sort where of, there's already an American, where there's already okay. American, if they had it together, and you get mm-hmm. to go and play in that big, beautiful stadium for that passionate crowd, and you think this is a team on the up, if I was Reggie Cannon, I'd take a gamble on that. 
I, I would too, and this is where I am maybe just going to be like an American Homer. But the other thing that I think is is worth remembering is like it is still Sunderland. It's not. It is not Barcelona. It is not Milan, which itself is cold. But like <laughs> th- there are there are, those cities like kind of sell themselves. But but I do think that like. American players are sort of used to like inhospitable situations uh, in terms of like playing like CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers but then also just I think there's this idea of like yeah like we know like beggars can't be choosers we know we're not going to get offers from Barcelona and Madrid so yeah we'll go to Sunderland that's fine like I do think there's something to be said for bringing in people who aren't going to be so like uh, flustered by a a severe weather and a lot of rain basically I'm saying just sign Seattle and Portland players It could work, Taylor. It, yeah. It could work. <laughs> and yep. not just the US, right? If you've got some scouts that are willing to go other places. I know these things cost money, but this could be a way that Sunderland could build themselves up. Instead, it looks mm-hmm. like they're just doing same old, same old. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. It does indeed. And with that, I would say, like, you shouldn't do same old, same old, but you also shouldn't do the, the like, negotiator, peacemaker uh, problem of assuming it's like what always happens with like Middle East negotiations is the person who's like trust me I can do this like it's the person who has entirely entire faith in themselves and they get in there and it's just like yeah I, we've heard all this before man like everybody has already tried all the things you're proposing and I feel like the ownership group when they came in as we've already talked about with Maja like Martin Bain told them certain things that they needed to do and my guess is going to be that they looked at him and thought like no you're the one who got relegated twice you don't know what you're talking about no like we've got this we have a plan you're clearly stupid and then here we are Josh Maja doesn't play for them anymore. So I also think there's probably an element of we know how it's done. We know how to get this thing right. And they're still in League One. So maybe open it up a bit more and be a bit more flexible. Yeah. And essentially we're saying the same thing. Hire some experts. Yeah. Hire some experts, not just the people you know. Hire us and then Christian from the Cooley. I I don't mean us. I mean some proper um, career football experts. Um, Shall we? we, I would hire you. I would hire you specifically. I mean. I genuinely would. You do. You, You and I employ each other. That's true, but no, I, I mean that. I think I think if if there were if there were a soccer podcaster that I would trust to like go in there and, and do a lot of work and have innovative ideas about how to like review players, but then be open to new ideas and try to learn and work really hard, I think you'd do a really good job. Settle in, hire Daryl Grove, but also let him still do the show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's you just podcast version of Settle Until I Die. Settle Until I Die episode season three is Daryl Grove in the Stadium of Light for the entire year. That's where you live now. It's just all the uh, and then you just broadcast from there. Yeah. <laughs> what about Nick Barnes? Who's Nick? The Barnes? Newcastle, the BBC Radio Newcastle guy. He'll be. He can be there too. Okay. He can be our third co-host. <laughs> Him and his uh, his uh, colourful notes. Um, yes. Uh, all right, Taylor. We should wrap this up before we risk uh, going long. Um, Already done. What? <laughs> what? Are, what else have people got to look forward to on the Total Soccer Show next week? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> um, they have got the historical tournament to end all historical tournaments. Yes, we have we have figured out our thirty two uh, biggest best teams from history. Uh, some of them are individual seasons. Some of them are like uh, teams from maybe let's say like a team that won the Champions League three straight times. We're going to sort of combine them into one team. Yes, uh, but we're going to have thirty two different clubs. Uh, some of them repeated from different eras, but uh, competing against each other. We now know who, which like who those thirty two are going to be. So next week we're going to be doing our our randomized draw to see who plays who and then we get to talk about each team as the matchups come about right it's gonna be a little trip through who plays whom correct we're the etonians correct yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) um uh, do you know what you're doing with ryan bailey yet I do not. We'll probably figure it out in, in the next like hour. But there will be a Taylor and Ryan Bailey show uh, next mm-hmm. week. Hopefully, George and I might also get the book club up and running. Um, so that that could happen. That could happen. Inshallah, in the Turkish sense, in honor of us, Turk. The Age of Football by David Goldblatt. Um, all right. Let's so on all these notes, Taylor, I'm going to say mm-hmm. thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. And away the lads. Right back at you, buddy, on all accounts. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.